Hello, welcome to episode 298 of Today in Space. We have a really awesome episode for you today. We had an interview with Edward Mayer and Alex Huckstep of Mahina Labs. Uh, it is Mahina Labs. You'll hear me in the beginning uh, mispronounce that, but I just wanted to say that up front. Uh, I, I wish I was better at speaking. <laughs> It's really, really niche skill of just being able to talk for long periods of time. But, you know, my English, not, it wasn't my first language. So I'm not that great at it. But I get by. So anyways, this episode uh, is very cool. We get to learn about robotics and machine learning. And we get to hear the history of yet another uh Space X SpaceX employee and someone like Alex uh, and actually Ed as well. Uh, we all three of us come from a background in additive manufacturing and three D printing, so we had a really interesting similar origin story, and it was very cool to talk to both of them. They took the time uh, on a on Valentine's Day to to talk with us. So thank you both for being our Valentine here on. Today in space, this is People of Science. We'll get into this in just a second, but thank you for joining us. Make sure to follow us on uh, everything that's out there that we're on. Instagram at Today in Space Pod, Twitter at Today in Space Pod, uh, or El Greco, E-L-G-R-3-C-O. And there's Today in Space podcast on the Facebook page, which we're, uh, we're starting to use a little bit more. Subscribe to us on YouTube and of course, whether it's Spotify or or Apple Podcast or whatever your favorite podcast app is, give us a five star rating. Tell, say, give us a comment. Share it out to people who are nerds, geeks, uh, you know, the like, the space folk, and anyone who's just is interested but hasn't gone all the way into STEM. This is a great episode for you, and we hope you enjoy. So thanks both Ed and Alex for coming on the podcast and let's begin. Welcome to Today in Space. This week we're doing a segment of People of Science where we talk to people who work in science, live science in their daily lives, and we talk about where that started, uh, where, where the passion, the spark, the flame happened early on to bring them to go through the gauntlet of the scientific method and especially business. And this week, we're very, very lucky to have Ed and Alex from Machina Labs. Uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week and talking about Machina Labs and, and sharing your stories. I appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks for having us. No, we're excited. Excited for this conversation. Absolutely. So let's get into it, guys. Uh, introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and then like what got you guys into science and engineering and all, all the stuff you guys are doing. Happy to go. Happy to start. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, I come from engineering background. You know, since um, I was a kid, I was always into making things, uh, fiddling with things. I went to a almost a boarding school that had a, a lot of focus on shop. Um, so from early days, I learned a lot about carpentry, um, you know, manipulating things with metals. Um, you know, I remember back when we were in middle school, we would make these 
metal pieces that, you know, like it was bottle opener or, uh, uh, you know, little like little statues of sharks I remember we would build. Um, so lots of focus when I was in that school was on, on shop. And um, once I got a little bit older, uh, obviously started to get fascinated by the computers. Um, and, you know, kind of was the world where like you could just do whatever you wanted in it compared to the physical world where there's a lot of limitations in terms of what you can build. And I ended up going to school for uh, computer engineering. Um, but when I was in school, I was always, you know, wanted an excuse to get out of school, right? I left the school. I, I went to, I started my undergrad in 2004. But, you know, I left, it took me eight, nine years before I graduated uh, because I left the school so many times to work at different <laughs> companies. You know, I left the school once to go work for Microsoft a couple of years. Um, then did the same thing with Google um, and really got started to get exposed to a lot of um, early machine learning products that were out there. I mean, I was at Google, I was working on um, ads pipeline, which was, I think at the time, the only commercial machine learning uh, product that I knew about. And, uh, but, but, you know, always still had that passion for uh, physical stuff and building things, uh, which, which made me kind of leave grad school and accept a job and have to pay that what, what, what Google was offering at the time to join SpaceX. Um, so yeah, no, I started, so when I worked, worked at SpaceX, this is back in 2012, it, even though SpaceX had still quite a number of employees, but it still was running like a startup, right? So you could, you could work on different parts of the stack from um, software that controls machinery and shop floor to flight software um, as a software engineer. So it was very, very exciting um, and, and a good experience for me back then. That's when I started to kind of like develop the passion for both like combining computers um, and, and physical stuff uh, and manufacture. But also at the same time, I had a lot of like hobbies around um, kind of building things. I was apprenticing at the shop in Pomona uh, that we were making like sheet panels for, for hot rods um, at, at the same time. And then, um, yeah, that's kind of where, kind of like the, was the convergence of where I am here today in terms of like, you know, software, robotics, and kind of building things. That's where it started. Uh, it kind of started at SpaceX where they all came together. Yeah, so I mean, um, growing up, I was always sort of fascinated with like building things too. If I think back, uh, like, you know, I was trying to make like skateboard ramps out of wood. I was making like bird houses and, you know, random things like that. Um, and then uh, in high school, physics was by far the most interesting subject to me. And uh, I remember sort of before college, my, my parents were like, you know, you can study physics, but you probably want to study engineering if you want a real job kind of thing. Um, or I should say, you know, much more likely to get a, you know, a paying job that's not in academia, at least at the time. Um, and so I studied mechanical engineering, uh, but, but really for most of my career have been uh, kind of leading business development, sales, marketing type activities um, for very technical, uh, like advanced manufacturing type uh, companies. Um, and like Alex, I know, you know, from desktop metal, obviously, like uh, I started at Stratasys, right? One of the original 3D printing companies, um, worked uh, one of the early employees at Carbon, did metal 3D printing, did composites, advanced manufacturing. So I've kind of run the gamut in terms of different materials, processes, and 
of course, now shaping sheet metal with robots. Yeah, it's crazy, guys. Like, and and at first, because Alex, I I know I know you from the three D printing side of things. Like, uh, as I started to learn more about what you guys are doing, it's it's crazy. It's this crazy combination of AI and robotics for for sheet metal forming. Can you guys give us like a like a not a not a pitch, but like a brief summary of what you guys are trying to do? You know, one of the main challenges when I started working at Spaces and started working in manufacturing, one of the main challenges was always. Um, how can you make the cost of your first part as low as your millionth part, mm-hmm. right? Because it's always costier to make one part. Um, but it, then once you scale, you can kind of like, you know, get much cheaper because the tooling that you use to make one part then makes millions of parts. And, you know, that tooling gets, um, uh, uh, the, the cost of that gets broken even over like multiple parts and the cost of the part goes down. Um, so even from days in SpaceX, you always, this was at the top of mind. How can you, as an engineer, you're always fascinated by building things, but unless you're working with these large corporations who can afford to build factories for the type of parts you want to make, you can never really get your ideas out there. Right. Right. Um, and that's what, why 3D printing was really fascinating uh, for me as well, in terms of like gives you that ability to get your first part out. But unfortunately, 3D printing only covers a safe, certain range of and types of parts. It's good, really good for parts that have maybe a lot of internal features, they're dense, but they're all group of parts like you know sheet metal, one of them, that there was no agile solution, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not gonna lie as we start thinking about how can we make that, bring that same type of, same type of benefit 3D printing brings to those solid parts to these uh, unsupported sheet metal parts. Um, and because I was working, like I said, as, a, as an apprentice in a lot of sheet shaping shops, I was like, well, we are doing this with our hands in these sheet shaping shops. Like we can form these shape sheets from flat sheet into complex shapes, but it's a lot of craft and creativity that goes into it and how to process the metal incrementally with hammers and things like that to get it to that shape. So what we're trying to do at Machina is really replicating what that craftsman does, uh, what the sheet shaper does, but with robots, hmm. right? How can I incrementally deform the sheet um, uh, step by step and get it to the final final geometry? Um, and that's that's where you need to have very good controls and robotics in place, but you also need to replicate what's happening in the mind of the craftsman. Yeah. And that's where the AI piece comes into play. What are the models of the material can you build the same way a craftsman has in his head that allows you to go through the steps of the process and get a part by the end that's very accurate? Um, and, and that's, that's what basically our robots do. They deform slowly. There's two robots on two sides of a sheet that come in and deform the sheet very incrementally, like, you know, like a potter does with their fingers, mm. uh, uh, when they're forming a clay bowl right. into a, into a geometry that is slowly becomes the final part. Mm. Uh, I, and you can I, find, and you oh, can find ahead. this on YouTube. I was just gonna say, you can find this on YouTube. You may want to, you know, cut it into the, to the edit. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll definitely, we've got some stuff here that we can add to show you guys the, the, the process that's happening. And it really is. I mean, it's a, it's a, man, a manipulation of atoms, really what you guys are doing in a way that's going to provide the, the, the best part possible. And like from a 3d printing perspective, definitely one of the challenges is especially when using metal and especially in aerospace and defense, which you guys, uh, from, from what I understand is your, is your biggest, uh, your biggest customers, like there are such high standards for metallurgy and for microstructures that sometimes 3D printing 
it's just too early and there hasn't been enough test it's very expensive even if you get the part done to really qualify it so um, what you guys are doing with sheet metal it kind of blows me away really I, I, I've heard titanium and I, I saw some invar and you've got some amazing stuff here on the desk uh, for us who, who are watching here on YouTube um, could you guys talk a little bit more about the, the metals that you're working with and like what people are looking for yeah sure so um yeah we can kind of point out a couple things on the table here so this is actually a uh, a wheel well housing mm. uh, this would be in a car um and you can see i don't know how the camera's angled but this is actually what we form i'll kind of pick it up here a little bit so this is actually what we form you know similar to 3d printing we have a, a sort of our support structure which we call skirt um, so we have to connect the shape to the sheet. And so that's what we form. And then the robots also trim this part out. Oh, wow. And you can see how shiny it is. It's also been finished. Um, we're, we're working on automating things like that too. Right now that was done manually. Wow. Uh, but this is aluminum, lots of applications, obviously in automotive, but also in aerospace, um, doing all sorts of different steels. Titanium, like we mentioned, Invar for tooling, more exotic alloys, um, uh, Inconel alloys, niobium. Yeah, refractory alloys, a lot of, some of these alloys, like refractories has a lot of out of space applications, high temperature out of space application. Mm -hmm. They're not good with printing, they're not good with welding, uh, but they're really good with deformation. They actually have a lot of elongation in them. Um, but traditionally you have to, it doesn't make sense for one nozzle extension for a rocket to build a die or it's going to be very expensive. So uh, those are some of the alloys that also we enable. That's actually a niobium alloy that we formed. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So I, I just, uh, and if folks don't know a lot about what I do during my day job, but, um, you know, I work with a lot of metals and, you know, my job really is like helping people be successful throughout the whole process. You've got this idea, but I'm there and the reality is the rubber hits the road. Like, is this possible and what went wrong and how do we fix it? Um, and for me, I learned that, uh, especially in just the manufacturing industry, but especially in additive, and, and I would say robotics too, but I'd love your guys' input, your background in manufacturing and actually making things, it seems like that's an extremely valuable tool and mindset and experience for you guys to push the bounds of what you're doing with robotics and, and AI. Does, does that ring true? That is true. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. Like you said, the, the manufacturing world is not as clear cut uh, as, as like, you know, some of the other disciplines of engineering is, mm. right? You know, you know, what I remember when I was at SpaceX, you know, like you kind of do whatever you need to do to kind of build the part that you need to get. Yeah. And that means a lot of times, you know, it's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into it. It's a lot of uh, personally, like this person paid a lot of attention to detail to get this part done. And I think um, that translates into building our systems as well, right? Not only from like how, um, what kind of heuristics we have around the process or our team has around the process because they have manually done that before mm. to also working with the customers and help them guide, like you, you do also your job, help them guide through like, okay, you know, what, what makes sense for you to do, what things you need to pay attention to, to make sure you get the, your parts at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, manufacturing is like one of the most just pure, like pragmatic kind of disciplines, like since the beginning of time, right? It was all about like, how do we make shelter? How do we make tools? How do we, 
make weapons. Um, and it was sort of, it was literally survival, right? Um, and, and now it's just sort of like, it, it's about solving problems. Uh, it's about doing so efficiently, cost effectively. And you can do some pretty creative things at low volumes, but in order to make it scale, yeah. as I think, you know, a lot of 3D printings learn the hard way, it has to be efficient. It has to be really efficient. Right. Um, and to be manufacturing is like, how do you, how do you find that efficiency, that repeatability? Hmm. Uh, to make something really valuable. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if, uh, and maybe you guys had a different experience, but the engineering class, like your degree, I don't know if that is really taught that well. And it's very, it's very like, this is what would happen perfectly. And the manufacturing side of things, you you just, you learn quick. <laughs> that That's not the case. I think like, it's a, like thinking back to school, like, maybe 10% of like what I learned in engineering is really directly applicable. Mm. Uh, I don't know, just earlier today, we were thinking about like, oh, if we wanted to double the stiffness of this sheet, how would I need to increase the thickness? Right. And like th those sort of simple equations, like do, you know, there are some uh, foundational things there that are really important to learn. Mm. But yeah, a lot of it's just learned in, in practice. Yeah, and especially with manufacturing, I think, you know, obviously I'm more involved with the lower volumes and I think there's so much tricks that you need to kind of learn over time. You know, I remember I was working at this, uh, like I mentioned, the sheet shaping shop and uh, Bobby Walden, he's, the, he's like a very well-known kind of sheet shaper in Southern California. And he has like this mental model of how the material will deform that is super accurate and it's very practical, right? But like none of it sounds like science. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, he comes to you and says, "Oh, sheet does three things. It, it bends, it stretches, and it, uh, it 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 shrinks." And I were like, "Well, I mean, scientifically, there are more things. There's shear. There's a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. But 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 in with his mind, he built this model through experience. And now he's like one of the only few people with hand can make very accurate putts for aerospace applications. Mm. That I think you know, if you put a material scientist, we're not going to explain." What the process will look like but he can just do it very intuitively so there's a whole bunch of things that you need to capture after school to be able to really be productive in, in your craft especially if it's around engineering yeah absolutely and like finding like the reps as as it's as i've thought of it like having 3d printers in my basement and i do it in my day job and everyone thinks i'm crazy but for me it's just getting in the reps of like how does this work like how, how do i make this work i got another idea let's make it so i mean i've got i've I've got stuff all over the place here. Friggin' doing a starship pen in the background with some resin, which is totally different than plastic. Um, you know, FDM stuff. So, um, yeah, it's it's wild. Um, but it's interesting. My experience. I, I worked in a, a injection molding shop in Connecticut, uh, Westminster Tool, um, and I was one of the things I was working on was their aerospace R and D. We were doing a lot of resin applications. Uh, and composite tooling. Um, but the other thing I was tasked with uh, was helping like reinvigorate their uh, mentorship program uh, so that, you know, people could learn the craft like they used to back in the apprenticeship program. So we were kind of rebuilding that book that everyone had that they would sign and, and you know, they would go with their master and they would learn the next thing. And when they were done, they were a tool maker. Um, and there's definitely the same type of thing with like the, it's not science, but they know it. So in that vein, with you guys using 
AI. Um, how are you guys training that? Is there are you do you have like the equivalent of toolmakers of blacksmiths that this knowledge is getting passed on? Is it your guys' knowledge that you're imparting as you learn? How does that work for you guys? And the way that works is mostly through capturing data, mm. right? So obviously, like we cannot really capture heuristics. At least some people maybe do it. We haven't found a good way to capture heuristics. Um, but what we can do is capture the data. And I think one of the main reasons that we architected this ourselves the way it is right now, which is kind of these robots and it's very open, is that so that we can incorporate all the sensors we need from like capturing the force and torque during the process at the end effector, um, capturing the amount of deflection you see in the robots with different sensors, um, and be able to almost create this digital twin of the process for every step of the way, being able to like scan the same robots, scan the sheet at any step of the process to give you what the deformation look like. And then using that data to start building models where it allows you to tell you if you lose these set of process parameters, this is the type of a part you get. These are the type of tolerances you will end up with. And then starting using those models that we built based on this data to predict what really gonna happen. And then reverse it, reverse engineer to start with the right process parameters to get the right, right product in the end, the right part with the right tolerances. But really comes down to architecting your system so you can capture as much data as you can so they can model the system. You know, traditionally folks used to do these type of work with simulation, mm. physics-based simulation. The challenge with physics-based simulation is that it's a slow, first of all. Like, you know, I remember early days we tried to simulate our process with the current commercial packages uh, using physics-based simulation. A part that would take 15 minutes to form would take a week on a machine to simulate. <laughs> and this was like relatively beefy machines, right? And at the end of the day, it wasn't really accurate either because there's right. so many assumptions that goes into that. So, and that's what kind of like started to have that seed of like, how can you model this process without physics-based simulation? If I have the data, can I just do a black box model of inputs and outputs? And if you have enough data, you can kind of trade them. That's crazy. So like, so the robots are learning essentially. It's like while they process, they're gathering data. So, so what do you guys... Um... Like you, st you mentioned data that you're gathering, you mentioned like scanning. Can you tell us a little bit more about the things that are gathering data for you guys? Yeah, yeah. So at every step of the process, I mean, like we kind of add more to it until mm -hmm. we, it's early on is like gather as much as you can and then you start selectively kind of remove the stuff you don't need um, and make yourself cheaper. So, you know, we gather from force, forces of the process. We gather um, deformation of the sheet, uh, data around deformation of the sheet. We gather data around how noodly our robots are, how much deflection they're getting in each poses. Mm. Um, because it's kind of funny, you see these giant robots that are applying the weight of a truck at their tip tip of the forming end effector. Yeah. And that means that they're actually significantly deflecting, like sometimes few millimeters. And now you have to adjust for that, right? You right. need to say, okay, under this amount of force, you need to actually adjust by this much to still, to still stay accurate. Mm. Um, those are the type of information we're gathering at the moment. That's, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's wild. Of course. Let's take a break from our conversation in this episode to talk about one of our sponsors, Manscaped. And Manscaped is offering 20% to our listeners, 20% off and free shipping for anything in the Manscaped store. The thing that we're talking about now and that I'm using currently is the Beard Hedger. And the Beard 
Hedra Pro kit that Manscaped sent me. So I have been growing up my beard and actually taking it seriously. I am Greek. I grow hair really fast. So obviously I love the lawnmower uh, 4.0 because it was just a solid uh, tool that could cut hair, very thick hair, uh, and it grows fast. So I, for a beard, it would just always kind of get crazy and long. And I would always just end up using one blade cover length because I couldn't find the rest of them, right? And if if I lost that one blade that was the right uh, height, the whole razor basically had to go in the trash, but not the beard hedger. Uh, it's one clip, and the blade, the titanium blade, actually gets closer or farther from uh, at, for like the length of the hair that it's cutting. Uh, so you have the... 20 different settings on the Beard Hedger. Um, I'm right now at a 6 millimeter, uh, where I was at a 5 the last time we did the ad for this podcast. Uh, and I, I just, there's this section like right underneath my, like um, above my chin, under my lip, like the goatee area, that always gets like, the skin always gets like really rough. Um, and I'm able to control that with the Beard Hedger. It's just, it's a great tool. It's super simple. It's it gets the job done, and I'm not just being uh, ad Alex here. It's legit. I do actually use this. We do believe in Manscaped, and we use the products all the time. And and there's the beard conditioner, the beard oil, which I'm, I'm actually liking the beard oil more uh, than the conditioner. But um, there's also the shampoo, which is kind of nice every once in a while um, to use that. Uh, and the the whole thing, the whole kit, the brush it's it's about the experience with uh, Manscaped, and that's what we love about them and why they're a sponsor here in the podcast. So get 20% off and free shipping by using the code SPACE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off, free shipping with code word SPACE. Go check it out, support the podcast, and get a, get the right tool for the job and, and the, the whole experience from the Beard Hedger down all the way to the, the, the joke newspaper that they give you to put down to catch all the hair and make cleanup easy and simple. It's the whole package. So manscaped.com, 20% off and free shipping by using code word space. Thank you, Manscaped, for being a sponsor. Now let's get back to our conversation. I had another question here. So the AI, the way you guys are gathering AI is is fascinating to me. Like it and it it's very uh it's very applicable. It's very, you know, hey, let's let's see what the reality is. And and more specifically like you were saying with the deflection, like all those little things that you don't realize along the way that you have to account for. Um you guys are picking it up. So so that's crazy. So uh tell me a little bit more about this this latest announcement from the investment with Lockheed Martin and how, how does that play uh, in, in for you guys for the future? Sure. Yeah. So we're yeah, obviously super excited to announce that Lockheed has in, made an uh, equity you know, investment in us. Um, we can't say too much about how we're working with them, but I mm-hmm. think, uh, you know, the audience can probably imagine a lot of the things that Lockheed works on uh, can benefit from, um, yeah, complex sheet metal, especially some of the high performance metals like titaniums and aluminums, like we mentioned. Uh, I don't know, anything, anything to yeah, add? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think the main, it's funny, this is one of the applications that I wasn't thinking about. You know, when we were t- thinking about early on about the flexibility of our system, it was mostly like an engineering 
excitement. It's like, can I form sheet metal parts in matter of hours as opposed to go by, by a, um, you know, kind of tool and make a tool. I remember I was talking to some of the folks that I knew at SpaceX at the time, they were like all the time kind of almost being encouraged not to use sheet metal parts because you can never get the sheet metal part right in terms of tolerance. Mm. And it also takes you four or five months before you can get your first part. And by that time, it's going to be probably a wrong part. You have to do another iteration. So it's never really going to going to come to fruition. So everyone yeah. is like, just stick with machining and other maybe 3D printing and things that can allow you to give you the part really fast with the tolerance you want. So really the excitement early on was like, can we actually enable getting your part in a matter of hours? Mm. Um, but I think once we started looking into that, we realized that there's a whole lot of applications in the bigger context of manufacturing that we also solve. A whole bunch of problems that we also solve. I think one of the ones that Lockheed's probably very excited about is, you know, the way current stamping plants are, is that it it results in um, basically one location making a lot of parts for the rest of the world, which creates centralization. Mm. Right? Because the tooling is so expensive, you need to have one location making parts and make it in volume, right? And then ship it to the rest of the world. That means like the facility ends up being in one location that is usually have cheap, cheap labor, but that also creates national security threats, right. right? Right. If it is end up being in Southeast Asia and we're in a conflict with, with some Asian country, um, uh, is that a good position to be in? Right. Uh, probably not. And I think government and, and, you know, our defense community is thinking of a lot about that. How can we bring a lot of these manufacturing jobs closer to home? And what would that look like? Does it look like, again, same as how it looked like in the 50s and 40s and 60s? Right. Probably not. You know, we need to start thinking about um, what are the new technologies that allows us to kind of be compete in the world scene, but also like have it have it more on the United States or Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, the COVID effect too, with what 3D printing was on the map in 2020 because of its ability to be decentralized, you know, and have manufacturing wherever it needs to be. And it's... Uh, uh, it's a, it's cool to see this technology also perform the same way as, as additive seems to be almost selectively. Um, what you guys are doing with sheet metal and robotic arms is just like, it, it changes a lot of the game of manufacturing. And I'm excited because having worked in manufacturing in the United States, like the more tools we can give people to manufacture where they are, I mean, the, the better as a people, I think we're going to be. Um, yeah. That's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, any I other mean, applications that you guys are excited about? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. no any, any applications uh, that you haven't mentioned that you're, you're excited about? Well, I don't, I don't know if we really highlighted, like you had mentioned earlier, composite tooling was one thing you worked on. That's a yeah. big area of interest for us. Um, you know, most composite tooling probably that you're familiar with, right, is machined from, mm -hmm. from billet. Right. And once you start looking at large tools, large composite parts that might be 10, 12 feet long, those tools start getting very expensive. You're cutting a lot of material, really long lead time. So we can form uh, the surface sheets for those tools. Then there's some sort of backing structure that gives a little more rigidity. Um, but the benefits of that are, you know, the obvious ones are just the speed and, um, and cost savings. But then there's sort of these second order ones like um, if this is an autoclave uh, tool, then you can heat it up and cool it down a lot faster. 
So you start to get much higher productivity out of a tool or out of an autoclave. Um, so yeah, that's a big, big area of interest for us, especially in aerospace and defense. Yeah, and I'll say uh, as well, and I think 3D printing offers this, but like the ability to change the design. Uh, so there's so much locked in design that happens with the traditional, you know, subtractive manufacturing, especially with tooling that, you know, and, and with how fast you guys are learning. And I think the whole world is learning right in, in any science field, like you're gonna in six months, it's going to be obsolete, because you've learned so much about it in practice. So um, what you guys are able to do adaptively, um, or even like test an idea before you put the money into the final thing, I think is huge. Yeah, for sure. And I think the area of composite tooling, a lot of customers with the, you know, kind of VTOLs getting a lot of, uh, you know, kind of attention and then like uh, attributable aircrafts. How can you just go over multiple designs really fast? And if every time you have to build a tool and then, and then that tool takes a while, it's very expensive. We are talking about some of these tools that Alex was talking about, like these are expensive alloys also to machine. Like there's a lot of waste goes into that. Like talking about machining an NVAR, which is a very expensive alloy. And that, that can be like, like a relatively large tool can be like a million dollar tool. Yeah. Now, okay. You can really iterate, maybe, maybe you can iterate two, three times on that, but that's yeah. already, you're racking up like $3 million bill. Like how much of that can you do to your point, uh, really slows down that rate of innovation. Um, uh, even on the composite side. Yeah. On the business side of things, you know, you guys, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are on the customer facing side of things. Um, so you're having a lot of conversations outside and, and you're, you're really at like the interface of like the interest in the technology. And you might even be talking to people who are not necessarily the people who are making the things that, that they're ultimately buying your technology for. Um, are, are there any challenges you're seeing with like old mind, older mindsets that in that process you have to kind of break down? as there's interest in it that that helps with the expectations going forward of what they ultimately get you know for, like fortunately uh there's been so much interest in what we're doing that we tend to attract um the more innovative mm. uh kind of technology enthusiasts i would say so most of our conversations are with the people that are really looking for uh, new tech, new advantages. Um, they're looking to do things in new ways. Uh, and then, you know, we will find during the kind of um, business development sales process that a lot of the sort of, I don't know, ten, maybe tend to be older, but like the really experts in conventional manufacturing get pulled, get pulled into the conversation. There certainly is a, a bit more convincing there. There's certainly a bit more risk aversion Right. there um but you know like you mentioned before the fact that we're using off-the-shelf materials that are very well understood um and that stamping has been around forever um and that's very well understood and yes we're deforming the material in a slightly different way but the physics are not totally different i think that does give us um a, a big kind of leg up uh, but yeah, any, any new, you know, any new process, uh, there's a lot of, um, risk aversion and just sort of like entrenched, uh, I don't know, interests, like incentive systems of mm. people want to keep promoting what they are good at and what they know, especially when you're talking about critical industries and, uh, yeah, you know, things like aircraft, no one wants to take 
take risks with with new processes, materials. Yeah. But um, yeah, if we want to stay cutting edge and and move fast, uh, we got to innovate. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's great to hear that you guys are are in the aerospace and defense field, providing uh, the U.S. with such a higher tech ability because you know we were talking with our our friends at embedded ventures um jordan noon oh and i forgot jenna don't forget jenna she's amazing but um they're talking about the how difficult it is to get that industry to change and to enable uh, you know what you guys have with ai i'm sure there's a lot of questions about security and all that stuff do you since you guys have kind of entered that field what what are you seeing that are you seeing a change in that mindset or is there still that uh that struggle of finding that balance yeah i think there's definitely a change happening i think i think thanks to additive a lot of folks are now open to the idea of like you know these are software defined systems and that means the software needs to get upgraded needs to have access to the data you know we're like talking with like some government entities where they're like, well, you know, this cannot really connect to the, to the internet mm. or connect to any external networks. And they were like, okay, like then it's just very hard to make this work. Yeah. Right. Uh, you cannot make it, we cannot support it. So there's a lot of discussions that we're having, but I think before it was just like a no, no. Now it's like, okay, how can we make this work? Right. It might be a little bit more challenging. It's like, how can we make this work? Because also the need has become, and the pain has become bigger. Right. Mm. Yeah. I think one main challenge that I have noticed a lot is, and this is something I think, um, uh, you know, I guess the, what, what I mean is that uh, manufacturing technologies, especially if they're older they are, <clears throat> people have been able to, <clears throat> sorry, people have been create interfaces around old manufacturing technologies in terms of requirements and tolerances, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we can get very close to those things, but I think really, uh, that in order for some of these new technologies to become adopted, people need to think a little bit more holistically. Mm. Instead of thinking about, okay, how can I replace, pick, change the stamping and drop sheet forming in there with robots? Think about, okay, how can I actually take advantage of sheet forming's capabilities uh, and things that provide even uh, in addition, like it, above what the stamping provides to make even a better product mm. and rethink those interfaces. And I think, you know, our job is to make the interfaces as much as possible close to stamping, but I think I would love to see more on the design side, folks thinking about how they can really take this application and this technology and um, come up with parts and designs that takes advantage of its benefits. I think it's the same thing with, uh, with the 3D printing, um, that, that, but I think more people are open to do that now. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that's exciting uh, on the business development side of things. I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of opportunities coming in for that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, especially on newer application. I think with like all the new companies who are focusing on space, all the new companies who are focusing on electrification, these folks are now open to try things in a different way. Right. Right, because they need to compete. So, and everything that can give them a little bit more advantage to compete with the traditional players, hmm. they're willing to try and take advantage. So yeah. that's, I think that's a big kind of like, you know, sale, uh, win in our sale. Mm. Yeah, and, and everything getting more expensive with the way things have been the last, you know, two years. It's, yeah, that, that I think drives the survival uh, up a little bit <laughs> to try some, some stuff that make, that works. Um, let's, let's switch it up a little bit. Tell me about the journey of uh, 
the company and you know the the organism that is Machina Labs. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that journey and, and where you guys are at. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we started thinking about the concept and idea back in 2018 um, with, with my co-founder, Bobak, who's also a material scientist. Um, and, uh, um, you know, obviously early days, it was very important to have folks who are on board with the mission and vision, what we we're trying to do. Folks who have experienced the challenge of making parts in, in, in other companies. And, you know, they're starting to think about how we can do things in a different way. Um, so we, I think we co-founded the company 2019. And uh, since day one, one of the main things that like, I think it was is unique to Machina and maybe not so much with some of the other manufacturing companies is <clears throat> since day one, we we're like, okay, we're not gonna do R&D unless it's on customer parts. Right. So we're like, who's the customer that we're working with? What is their application? We're going to develop the application with that part in mind the whole time. So we're never going to start getting into this paradigm of like, let's run a whole bunch of tests for the sake of running tests and learning the process a little bit better. So that was one of the things that's still very strong at Machina. Uh, we still kind of like, you know, sometimes we get parts from really reputable places and we're like, you know, we're going to figure things out with this part and we're going to ship it. Right. Um, and we have done that to this day. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, but it was a good thing because since day one, we started having revenue, right? Even when we were doing R&D and other things. That's huge. Uh, and now, and now, you know, and now we're getting to a point where the team is more than 45, 50 people. Um, you know, from the first days of like putting cells together down on the floor with, uh, with like two, three people, like, you know, putting holes in the concrete, putting the robots yeah. down uh, to now that there's like a significant team um, uh, doing that. That's great. That's great. I mean, it, yeah, that that kind of growth. Wow, that's five years. That's wild, guys. That that must that must have been a wild ride so far. <laughs> no, it was it was great. I think at the end of the day, I think you know, one of the main things that I I think it's very exciting about Machina is like everybody's really excited about the mission, which is mm -hmm. like you know, can you get enable anybody who come up with a great idea to just form a part, and uh, and and kind of get their parts in their hands. Um, and, and that just fuels every day, you know, like everybody in the company is excited to do that every day, um, which is very inspiring, even for me, having been here for like three or four years now. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's excitement of a, a startup, right? Like that's, that it definitely takes a certain person uh, that, that likes that, uh, you know, life is stressful. So like you got to find your stress and there's definitely people that are like, Hey, this is exciting. I'm never bored. And uh, you know, I want to, I want to change things up and that's, that's definitely the startup yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of the story, right? Early days. That's why we were making a part for one of the, you know, kind of popular aerospace companies. And at the time we didn't have proper controls in place. Mm -hmm. We knew what the control rules need to be, but we didn't have proper controls. And these first parts were long. It would take a few hours and they have five or six of them. So it would like, and we really were in crunch time to deliver these parts. And I remember me and a bunch of few, a few other folks, we were taking, um, taking uh, basically shifts to actually be the control. So it's like, you know, you're sitting in front of the, in front of the row that's actually modifying parameters in real time to get the part to the right place. But, you know, yeah, those are the kind of the fun things and memories that like you spend a lot of time and it happens in the startups and yeah, but like, you know, it's a fun memories that stays with you. Um, and still like vividly, I remember how much, uh, it was a really good time we had um, making those parts. Oh yeah. It's like drinking from a fire hose of learning. It's, it's crazy. 
it's it's so much fun. <laughs> I've done I, that's how I learned three D printing was literally looking at the printer when it didn't work. It's like what is it doing? And then you right. learn you learn another button, you learn another setting, and then you're off and running. It's cool. Well, guys, thank you. This has been amazing. I don't want to keep you guys too long. I know we we have an out here in a few minutes, but last final thoughts for you guys uh, that you want to share with the folks listening and watching, um, whatever it might be. I mean, I, I would just add, like, to, to Ed's point, um, we're we're on a we're on a mission here. Um, I think if you know if there's uh, anyone listening in your audience that's interested in joining, uh, we'd love to hear from them. Uh, we're growing really rapidly, doing a lot of lot of hiring um, across like virtually every every function, um, and uh, yeah, looking for really uh, excellent, passionate um, engineers, leaders. Um, operations people, HR, you name it. Yeah, I think one, is, one thing that's very exciting about companies like, like you know, three D printing or our companies is that it's very multidisciplinary. Mm. It's one of the main reasons, like, I was very excited about this field. Like, you know, we were talking about what are you not taught in school? You know, if, when you go to school, they try to like push you in one discipline, like, oh, you're a mechanical engineer, you're a computer engineer, you got to go get expert. But I think. In, in the fields like this, you know, it's where a combination of material science, robotics, mechanical engineering, computer engineering that all come together. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is very, at least personally for me as an engineer, it was very exciting to work in this in this space. Um, so like folks that are joining us, you know, will be able to kind of like work on all of these different things, mm-hmm. um, which is something you don't get exposure to when you're in school or when you're working in large companies. Totally. Yeah, I think it's like something advanced manufacturing in general, like you end up working across like so many different industries, um, you know, on a daily basis, working with like all these different functions from all these different companies, all essentially trying to solve different um, design, material, engineering, manufacturing challenges. Mm. And that's what I get. That's what I get motivated and, you know, about and it keeps it super exciting every day. Every day is is really different. Would you say one of the traits you guys are looking for is just like uh, natural problem solvers? That's the most important thing. So we always say like, you know, in hiring folks, look for somebody who's a smart a problem solver and is will, it has action bias. Instead of trying to think about it all the time, like mm-hmm. can he just gonna, you know, roll up his sleeve and actually try something and see how it works. And those are number two, two, two most important traits we're looking for. That's that's awesome, guys. I, I appreciate it. Where where can they uh, reach out? Is there a website? Is there a place you guys post the jobs? LinkedIn? Yeah, so so um, Machina Lab, M-A-C-H-I-N-A-L-A-B-S dot A-I uh, is our website. Um, they can find us on you know LinkedIn, Twitter, all the usual places. Um, and then I guess if you can sh- you can shoot us an email, info at Machina Labs dot A-I. You heard it here, folks. Uh, if you guys are interested in what Machina Labs is doing, uh, obviously reach out. Make sure to follow them whatever, wherever they are. Um, obviously, they can't talk about everything they're doing uh, due to the nature of the job you guys are doing, and that's that's manufacturing for a lot of this stuff, especially space. But there's a lot we're excited to uh, to keep following for you guys. So thank you both for, for coming on. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, as always, spread love and spread science. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Thanks for having us.